It was June of 1992 in Springfield, Missouri. Best friends Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall couldn't believe they were graduating from high school. Though the two friends had different plans for life post high school, they each looked forward to that last summer together before they had new responsibilities. Unfortunately, that summer wouldn't even get started when Susie, Stacy, and Susie's mother, Cheryl, all disappeared the night the two girls graduated from high school. This is episode number 56. Thank you for joining us as we discuss the Springfield Three. Hello and welcome back to the 3 a.m. Mystery Club podcast. I'm Brandon. I'm Ro. And I'm Derek. And I have to say that I'm very excited about tonight's episode. Derek is up and he's covering a case that I've almost covered a few times, but I keep I kept thinking, no, this is a Derek case. So then I tossed it to him a while ago and then I think we lost track of it and he's picked it back up and I can't wait to discuss it. It's always kind of been in the back of my mind, and it's one of those famous cases that even though it's well-known, and I've certainly heard of it, I, for some reason, hadn't paid much attention to it. But as you said, you, Brandon, kept telling me to please do this one, and I'm happy to talk about it tonight. Yeah, I agree. It is pretty well-covered by a lot of people, but it's it's also a case that I often, I keep forgetting about, and I like want to go back to it. So I'm glad that we get to discuss it and give our thoughts on it. Same here. I hope our listeners enjoy hearing about this, and hopefully there are some people out there who haven't heard of it. So I'm ready to discuss if you both are. Let's go. KYTV, Springfield, Missouri. Number one in the Ozarks. This is KY3 News. The last time anyone saw Susan Streeter or Stacy McCall was over the weekend at this house in Battlefield. The girls had gathered here with some friends after graduating from Kickapoo High School on Saturday. They left here early Sunday morning. Uh, they said they were going to the other girl's house and they were going to be spending the night there and they called me in the morning so we could go to Whitewater. And I called, they never called me in the morning so I called them and I called and I called and called and I got no answer. So I went over there and they weren't there. The winter of February 1992 was harsh in Springfield, Missouri. 42-year-old hairstylist and mother of two, Cheryl Levitt, had just moved into a new home with her 19-year-old daughter, Susie Streeter. They were downsizing into a more modest house after Cheryl's recent divorce. It's believed Cheryl had plans to fix it up and flip it before purchasing a bigger home. Cheryl was a hardworking single mom who actively tried to instill a disciplined work ethic in her daughter. Susie was a senior at Kickapoo High School and worked at the local movie theater after school. A few months after their move, Susie began focusing on her upcoming graduation from high school. She spent a lot of time with her friend, Stacy McCall, that she had known since childhood. Susie and Stacy had been participating in a lot of senior activities and were feeling nostalgic. They really wanted to make the most of their last days of high school. Family members say that Susie and Stacy were reflecting upon their childhoods, having that realization familiar to most high school seniors that not all of their friends would be attending college and that ultimately everyone would be splitting up. Their classmate, Janelle Kirby, was friends with both Susie and Stacy. Though the three of them didn't do much together as a group, Janelle spent time with both of them separately pretty frequently. According to Janelle, the three of them had typical plans for the summer, including water parks, shopping, and college preparations, all the things you would expect from a group of friends graduating from high school. In the fall, Janelle and Stacy had plans to attend college together at Missouri State University. 
Susie planned to follow in her mother's footsteps and become a hairdresser. Susie and Cheryl were extremely close. It's been said that Susie looked up to her mom a lot, and it made complete sense to those that knew her that she would have wanted to pursue the same career as her mother. On June 6, 1992, at 4 p.m., the girls attended their graduation ceremony held at Missouri State University campus. Everyone was in a very celebratory mood. After the ceremony, the three girls headed out separately for family dinners, then met up later at Janelle's house for a party at her neighbor's. I need to mention that that night, Kickapoo High School actually had a party following graduation. It was a lock-in called Project Graduation. It was an alcohol-free event and it required the students to sign a pledge that they wouldn't drink and wouldn't leave until the next morning, around 8 a.m. One can't help but wonder, had the girls attended that lock-in, would the night have ended differently? But they ended up going to that party at Janelle's neighbors. There were actually several parties the girls attended that evening before they were to travel to Branson, which was about 30 miles away. They had plans to stay at a motel in Branson, close to Whitewater, an outdoor water park where they would enjoy their first full day of summer vacation. Stacy's mother, Janice, was not thrilled about the girl's plan to stay at a motel and was relieved to receive a phone call from Stacy at about 10 p.m. informing her the girls decided to stay at Janelle's house instead. Janelle said the three of them were having fun at the party and it was getting late and they just did not feel like making that drive all the way to Branson that late. The new plan was to head to the water park the next morning. Around the same time, so around 9.30 to 10 p.m., Susie's mom, Cheryl, was home alone. Typical of Cheryl, she was busy working on a project at home on Delmar Street before she went to bed. After a long night of celebrating, Susie, Stacy, and Janelle were ready to call it a night. But when they got to Janelle's house, they realized it was full of out-of-town relatives who were visiting for Janelle's graduation. This meant there wasn't enough room for the girls to stay at Janelle's as planned. So Janelle decided to stay at her own house, while Susie and Stacy made the decision to stay at Susie's house with Susie's mom, Cheryl. Susie and Stacy left in separate cars and were to call Janelle the next morning when they woke up so they could all head to the water park. The next day on June 7, 1992 at 9 a.m., Janelle Kirby woke up without a phone call from Susie or Stacy. So Janelle called Susie's house and nobody answered the phone. Janelle called back many more times trying to reach them, again with no one answering. By noon, the girl still hadn't called Janelle. Janelle's boyfriend, Mike, picked her up so they could check on Susie and Stacy at Susie's home. Since Cheryl, Susie's mom, and Susie had just recently moved into that house on Delmar Street, Janelle had never been there before. When Janelle and Mike arrived at Susie and Cheryl's, it first appeared as though everyone was home. Susie and Stacy's vehicles were parked in the driveway, and Susie's mom, Cheryl, was in the carport. Everything looked normal. Janelle and Mike approached the house, but before they even knocked on the door, they spotted something that was not normal. The front porch had broken glass lying everywhere. Then, after a quick look around, Janelle noticed the globe dome thing, you know, that covers porch lights. That was shattered, but the light bulb itself was still in one piece. Someone or something must have bumped it, she thought. Not a big deal. Janelle and Mike knocked on the door. No one answered. But at this point, they weren't super worried yet. They just thought the three women were still sleeping. As a favor to Susie's mom, and just to be nice, Janelle's boyfriend, Mike, found a broom somewhere nearby, and he grabbed it and swept up the glass and dumped it in the garbage. And as Janelle peered into the house through the living room window, Mike unknowingly threw away the only piece of evidence in what later appeared to be a kidnapping and triple murder. 
a case that still reverberates in the area. A cloudless day with temperatures near 80 degrees Fahrenheit, Janelle walked around to the backyard, wondering if she would find her friend's son bathing. The yard was empty. The couple then opened the door and called out for Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl, but no one answered. As they looked around the house, everything appeared to be normal. Janelle and Mike took a peek into the bedrooms, and it seemed both Susie and Cheryl's beds had been slept in. In the bathroom, it was obvious the women had removed their makeup with the washcloth they had used lying there, along with their jewelry that had been removed. All signs pointed to Susie and Stacy having made it to Susie's from Janelle's the previous night, and it seemed likely that the pair went to bed right away. Janelle started to grow uneasy in the home. Cheryl's dog, a Yorkie named Cinnamon, was unusually anxious and barking. Janelle knew Cinnamon well, and he jumped into her arms, seemingly for comfort. Something wasn't right. Not only was it uncharacteristic of Cheryl and Susie to leave Cinnamon unattended, but their cigarettes and lighters were also laying on the table. Family and friends know they always brought these items with them when they went anywhere. Cheryl has been described as a chain smoker who went everywhere with her cigarettes. Bart Streeter, Susie's brother, says that when Cheryl would get out of bed and go into another room in the morning to even say something brief, she did so with a cigarette in hand. So this was definitely strange. Although Janelle and Mike were confused, they decided to leave. They didn't know where Cheryl was, but assumed Susie and Stacy had gone to the water park without them. Remember, this was 1992. Cell phones were not common. There wasn't this constant ability to communicate back then. If you couldn't find someone, you kind of had to wait until they contacted you from their home phone. Just as the pair were about to leave the house, the phone at the Delmar Street home rang and Janelle answered it in hopes that someone had information about her friends. But the call was not helpful. It was disturbing. A male voice made sexual comments. I'm not sure exactly what was said. I've never found quotes that the caller made. All I've heard is that it was sexual in nature and very weird. Janelle hung up thinking it was likely a very unfunny prank. But as soon as she hung up, another call came through immediately, again with a male caller saying sexual things to Janelle. Janelle and Mike then left the home, unsure if something is very wrong or if there's some sort of an explanation for the women's whereabouts. Meanwhile, Stacy's mother Janice and older sister Lisa were planning a trip to a local bridal shop to choose Lisa's wedding dress. Janice tried to reach Stacy before they headed out that day, first trying Janelle Kirby's house, because last she heard, that was where Stacy was spending the night. Janelle's sister answered the phone and told Janice Stacy was not there. And at the last minute, Stacy had decided to go spend the night at Susie's. Being a mom, Janice was not happy that her daughter Stacy did not tell her about her change of plans, but there was nothing she could do about it. She didn't have the phone number for Susie's family's new home on Delmar Street. Again, 1992. So she went ahead to the bridal shop with Stacy's sister, Lisa. She was annoyed with Stacy for not keeping her in the loop, but assumed that she would see her later in the day. At 5 o'clock p.m. on June 7th, it had been 15 hours since anyone had seen or heard from Stacy McCall, Susie Streeter, or Susie's mom, Cheryl Levitt. But no one knew if they were actually missing. Stacy's mom, Janice, finally tracked down Susie's new phone number. And when no one answered, Janice drove to Susie's house. She opened the door and began calling for the women. Though reluctant, Janice decided to walk into the home and take a look around. 
Janice recalls feeling like it was wrong to be inside of their home, but it bothered her that no one had heard from her daughter. So she decided to check for herself for any signs of the three women. Just like Janelle and Mike from a few hours earlier, Janice noticed some strange things with how the house was left. Her daughter's clothes from the previous night were neatly folded on the floor, but her t-shirt and underwear were missing. Janice described the TV as being fuzzy. I'm assuming this means it was either left on one of those in-between channels that were common before smart TVs, the ones that have nothing but static, or the three had been watching something on TV. And remember back in the day, late at night, some TV channels would just end, like the programming would end and it would turn to static. So I'm assuming it was one of those scenarios, but the TV was on a static, fuzzy channel. Stacy's, Susie's, and Cheryl's purses were all sitting on the floor right next to each other. This is what really confirmed for Janice that something was not right. Janice, sick with worry, called the police to report her daughter Stacy missing. The officer informed Janice he would file a missing persons report. Since it was so late, he asked her to come into the station the next morning. The officer then made an unsettling request that no mother would want to be asked. Would she be able to obtain the girl's dental records? Janice went into search mode and got pictures of the girls from graduation developed, doing something she never would have imagined she would be doing just 24 hours after the Kickapoo High School graduation she was creating a missing persons poster for her daughter, along with Susie and Cheryl. With the help of the Springfield community, Janice distributed the poster statewide. Soon, the posters appeared across the country in various stores and businesses, dubbed by the media as the Springfield Three. By now, a timeline had developed. Sometime between the hours of 2 a.m., when the teens left Janelle Kirby's house and 8 a.m. when people began calling Susie's house, something had happened to the three women. To complicate things, and though well-intentioned, friends and family of the women who went to the crime scene may have removed critical evidence. During Janice's panic-stricken search, she played Cheryl and Susie's answering machine messages, most likely erasing a message that may have contained a clue for investigators. Janice recalls that there was a strange message left by a male caller. She doesn't remember what the message said exactly, but she remembers that it struck her as unusual and somehow it got deleted. Investigators don't believe this message necessarily had anything to do with the prank call received by Janelle, but with the message being erased, they really can't know for sure. Soon, tips started flooding in. In an odd coincidence, a neighbor of the McCalls reported a stolen vehicle the same night the three went missing. The owner of the car was a classmate of Susie and Stacy's. At first, authorities seemed to focus on the stolen vehicle, but it was discovered the car was stolen from the McCalls area and not by Susie and Cheryl's home. When the car turned up days later, there was no evidence it had any connection to the women's disappearance. Then, a very strange tip came in. A server at Georgia's restaurant, a favorite of Cheryl and Susie, told authorities she saw the three women eating between 1 and 3 a.m. on the night they went missing. Georgia's was a popular restaurant, and there were quite a few customers that night. Everyone police could identify and locate as having eaten there that night was interviewed, but no one was able to corroborate that any of the three women were at the restaurant that evening. Even as 30 officers were assigned to the case, as well as the FBI, the leads they did receive went nowhere. Springfield was gripped by fear and police were baffled by the lack of evidence. Three women from their community had essentially vanished off of the face of the earth without a trace, and people were scared. 
police started gathering information about the trio. Nothing in any of their backgrounds suggested that they would run away. So they searched deeper. They started with Cheryl Levitt. She was single at the time, a mother of two, and worked as a hairstylist. Bart Streeter, her oldest, Susie's brother, was nine years older than Susie. As many moms say to their adults, or soon-to-be adult children, Cheryl told Bart if he wanted to live under her roof, he had to live by her rules. Bart didn't want to live by her rules, though. So at 17, he moved out. According to Bart, Cheryl struggled with her relationships with men who often had problems with alcohol. Bart said he too struggled with the same issues. Cheryl had family members who drank to excess, so she really wanted her son to quit drinking. And at least at that time, he did not want to. After a rough breakup with his girlfriend and a decade of living on his own, Bart returned to Springfield in the fall of 1991. He needed a fresh start. Bart and his little sister Susie decided to get an apartment together, which would give them a chance to get to know one another again. But Bart's drinking got in the way. This is something that Bart regrets today. One night, when Susie returned home from her shift at the movie theater, she and Bart got into such a heated argument about his drinking that it resulted in Susie moving back in with Cheryl and the two of them making the unfortunate decision to cut Bart out of their lives. Just three months later, before they were able to reconcile, Bart's mother and younger sister were missing. Given the turmoil between Bart and his mom and sister, and the fact that he was a male and a male family member, police of course began looking at him as a suspect. When asked where he was that evening, Bart told investigators he had been drinking that evening and passed out on his couch. After speaking with acquaintances of Bart, police were able to cooperate his alibi. Investigators say he fully cooperated with them as well as showed a strong interest in the case from the start. He also passed a polygraph test. Next, police began looking into Susie Streeter's past relationships. One in particular caught their attention. She had been in a relationship with a guy named Dustin Reckler. Susie had broken up with Dustin just a few months before her disappearance. The pair broke up when Dustin was arrested for vandalism at a local cemetery. Police wondered if this crime could have been linked to a motive in the disappearance of the three women. After driving around one night, Dustin and a few friends vandalized a mausoleum in the following morning, kids found skulls in a tree at a local park. And then a few days later, a strange tip was called into police. The tip referred to a deal at a local pawn shop where some men were selling some gold teeth fillings. Officers discovered that the gold fillings were taken from the skulls within that mausoleum from the vandals. The pawn shop took the ID of the person selling. His name was Michael Clay. Michael Clay was apparently a close friend of Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckler. When officers visited the Clay home to follow up, they discovered some strange items within the residence. A poster with a large circle, candles, and an animal skull. You can guess where this is headed. The early 90s, candles, and a skull? Yep, they started speculation about satanic cults. When police returned to Michael Clay's house the next day to question him, all of that suspicious paraphernalia was gone. Both Dustin Reckler and Michael Clay were brought to the police station for questioning about the vandalism of the mausoleum. Susie Streeter provided police with a statement on her knowledge of the incident. That testimony was then used as evidence to charge the two boys. Susie had been described as having been cooperative with the police and that she provided them with a written statement. But Susie wasn't even aware what the police were planning for the two boys until it had been carried out. Now let's skip a bit ahead to June 11th, 1992, four months later. Susie, along with her friend Stacy and her mother Cheryl, were missing. Just a week into the investigation, police called Dustin Reckler and Michael Clay 
back into the station to find out if there was a connection between Susie's statement on their vandalism and her disappearance. A news crew in Springfield reported to the community that Michael Clay had made some incriminating statements during his interrogation. According to Bart Streeter, Susie's brother, in one interview I watched, Michael Clay stated he, quote, wished those bitches were dead, quote. So if he was hoping they were dead, did he do it? In future interviews, Michael Clay would claim he made that statement because he had a disagree or conflict with one of the investigators that was interrogating him. Both Dustin Reckler and Michael Clay are adamant that they had no involvement in the disappearance of the three women. On the night that the women disappeared, Dustin Reckler alleges he was at a local band's rock concert and after party. It wasn't an airtight alibi, but it really couldn't be confirmed or denied either. Michael Clay had a similar alibi for that evening, and his also could not be confirmed or denied. But almost three weeks after the boys pleaded not guilty in court to institutional vandalism, the three women were still missing. Eventually, the boys changed their plea to guilty and were placed under probation. Police say both Dustin Reckler and Michael Clay have cooperated throughout the investigation, but they can't be ruled out as persons of interest. In early July of 1992, so about a month after the disappearance, a disturbing piece of information came to light about the morning of June 6th, the day of the disappearance. A woman reported she was on her front porch sometime between 6.30 and 7 a.m. on Sunday and saw a van turning around. She thought Susie Streeter was driving the van. The sighting took place about a mile east of Cheryl and Susie's house on Delmar Street, but police seemed to believe it was a solid lead. The woman alleges Susie had appeared to be crying pretty hard. Even more disturbing, she also reported she heard a man's voice say, don't do anything stupid, just back out, turn around and get us out of here. I'm sure you're probably asking, why didn't she come forward with this information earlier? The witness says she hadn't seen the missing persons poster at that point. When she did, she recognized Susie as the driver of the van, pretty disturbing. The witness described the van to the police and an official search began. The van was described as a 1964 to 1970 Dodge panel van with a silver to green or celery color. Police bought a van of the same model, painted it a similar green, and parked it outside of their station with a sign asking people to contact them with information if it looked familiar. Calls began flooding the station. A paperboy alleged he saw what he thought was a brown van but said it was dark and he couldn't really determine the color. Eventually, a tip came all the way from Florida, pointing investigators to a man named Robert Craig Cox. The person with the tip believed Robert Cox could be connected to the disappearance of the Springfield Three. The caller was the brother of a woman named Sharon Zellers, who in 1978 was the victim of abduction and murder. At the time of Sharon Zeller's murder, Robert Cox had just graduated basic training as an army ranger. To celebrate, he had taken a trip to Florida with his family. Late one night, his mom had to rush him to the hospital when he returned to their hotel room covered in blood and even had a portion of his tongue bitten off. Naturally, he was asked about this and he explained it that he bit his own tongue. The nurse working knew he couldn't have done that because it was bitten in the other direction and it had to have come from someone else. Eventually, Sharon Zeller's body was found in a sewage facility just a few hundred feet from Robert Cox's hotel room. Robert was questioned by police, but in the late 70s, DNA evidence wasn't advanced enough to be conclusive, so he wasn't charged. Instead, he traveled to California with the Army, where he was convicted of abducting and assaulting two women in two separate incidents. He was taken into police custody in 1985. While he was in custody in California, he was indicted in Sharon Zeller's murder 
and extradited to Florida, where he was tried, found guilty, and ultimately placed on death row. The Florida Supreme Court overturned his sentence, though, due to a lack of evidence. Robert Cox was then extradited back to California to finish serving his sentence for the two abductions. But in 1992, he was paroled and went back to his hometown, where his parents still lived. You guessed it, Springfield, Missouri. I need to mention that in the early 90s, it wasn't as easy to identify and locate where criminals were living. They didn't have all of these lists that we have now, where you can look up people and see if they've committed whatever crime and if they're living in your neighborhood. So police didn't immediately make the connection to Robert Cox. However, Sharon Zeller's family had sure kept tabs on him and realized he was in Springfield, Missouri at the time of the disappearance of the Springfield Three. They contacted the Springfield Police Department, who then began to zero in on Robert Cox. At this time, Robert Cox was employed as an underground utilities worker, but his previous job piqued the interest of investigators even more. He was previously a mechanic at a used car lot where Stacy McCall's father was a salesman. Police began wondering if Robert Cox could have seen Stacy while she was visiting her dad at work and targeted her. This was a natural assumption and police were attempting to connect the dots. But considering Stacy and Susie had made that last minute decision not to go to that hotel room in Branson and to stay at Susie's instead, it seemed to make the possibility of a planned abduction even less likely because I would think, how would he know that? That, he would, that they would have made that choice at the last minute. On the night of the disappearance, Robert Cox said he had attended a golf tournament and stayed at his parents' house that evening. He alleged he took his girlfriend and her child to church the next morning. When the girlfriend was interviewed, she confirmed he did take them to church that next morning. With Robert Cox's alibi corroborated, police were once again facing a brick wall. However, investigators did not rule him out as a suspect. Flash forward to March of 1995. Three years had passed since the Springfield Three vanished off of the face of the earth. Then a significant event took place that brought investigators back to Robert Cox as a person of interest. Robert had since moved to Texas and was arrested for aggravated robbery. When police in Springfield heard about this, they decided to take another look at Robert Cox's alibi in the case of the missing women in Springfield. When they re-interviewed Robert Cox's former girlfriend, she recanted her previous statement and said she had spoken with Robert just prior to that interview and that she actually did not attend church with him that Sunday morning like she previously stated. The former girlfriend of Robert Cox alleges he instructed her to give that response should she have ever been questioned. The former girlfriend said she thought Robert may have been involved in other crimes, but didn't know he was being looked at in the case of the Springfield Three. Without a solid alibi, Robert Cox was on top of the short list of suspects for the case. Police made several visits to Texas where Cox was serving a life sentence. He repeatedly denied having any involvement with the Springfield case, frustrating police. Some say he toyed with the police department. He told investigators just enough to intrigue them with his knowledge of the case, but not enough to incriminate himself. About a year later, still incarcerated in Texas, Robert Cox gave an interview about the three missing women in Springfield. He claimed he knew they were dead and that he believed the person who did it had experience and that the three women were likely in or near Springfield. Did Robert Cox actually have knowledge of what happened to the three women or was he actually just enjoying the attention and toying with investigators? It was the ultimate question. Flash forward to 2007, 15 years after the women went missing, the tips still ebbed and flowed. A lot of people had considered where the women could have been potentially buried. One place that kept coming up for some reason 
was the South parking garage at Cox Hospital. Coincidentally named Cox, by the way, it had no connection to person of interest Robert Cox. A mechanical engineer named Rick Norland was asked to come to Springfield. Mr. Norland was an expert in ground penetrating radar known as GPR, which produced underground images. GPR can detect objects buried in the ground, cracks in soil, etc. To explain a little more about ground penetrating radar, the images GPR produces aren't as clear as photographs. I mean, you're not going to see a crystal clear picture and you're not going to know exactly what's in the ground, but they give the professional a hazy idea of what's in the ground that then has to be interpreted. Mr. Norland inspected the South parking garage at Cox Hospital and was shocked to find three anomalies, roughly the same size. Two were parallel with one perpendicular to the other two. Mr. Norland says this anomaly is very consistent with what would be found at a grave site. So though the technology can't fully confirm that these were bodies, it seems a little odd. To confirm if bodies were buried under this parking structure, the site would have had to have been dug up, but the Springfield Police Department weren't sure if the GPR results were conclusive enough to justify tearing up the parking structure. Police had faith in the technology and Mr. Norland had a very respected reputation, but an anomaly doesn't exactly mean three bodies. The parking garage itself was built a year after the disappearance of the Springfield Three. That means it was still under construction when they went missing. Did this make it easier for someone to hide bodies there? In 2002, investigators went to a concrete company, also within the same general area, after two women told police there were men there who drove a green van. Cadaver dogs were brought in and it hit on three spots and bones were recovered. But after testing, it turned out to be far too old to belong to the women in Springfield. Then in April, 2003, tips led investigators to farmland south of Cassville. Using backhoes, they dug huge holes, but only managed to find two pieces of possible evidence. One, possibly blood, and the other, the section of a green vehicle, perhaps like that green van witnesses say they saw back in 1992. I expected her home that night, the next day, maybe a couple of days afterward, said Janice McCall, Stacy's mother, in a 2017 interview. Never in my wildest imagination did I think that it would be 25 years later and I would be saying Stacy is still missing. The residents of Springfield still ask where the missing women could be, while the question of what happened to them remains puzzling. They were wonderful people, fun people, just normal people, said Stephanie Appleby, a friend of Stacy and Susie in 2017. We all carry them with us in our hearts and pray that, still pray, that they come home and that we get some sort of closure. Janice McCall, though, vows never to give up believing her daughter is potentially still out there. Until I know 100% that Stacy is deceased, I will never declare her dead, she said. They're going to have to find some remains somewhere before I call her legally dead. It's not for any reason other than if I do and she's not dead, think of how mad she'll be when she gets back. So um, I want to go back to the um, concrete company just for a second. Okay. So they, they had cadaver dogs and the dogs hit on three bodies, but the bodies weren't them. Did they ever, you know, reiterate on that mystery or like, do we know anything about that mystery at all? Like who, what these remains were, were they? I don't know for sure. I hate to say, I don't know what that was. But it is very odd. All I found was that the dogs were brought into that company and it, they hit on three different spots and bones were recovered, but it was too old to have belonged to the women. I don't know who it belonged to. 
to me, that is just so crazy that, you know, you have three people missing. Then suddenly you, there's reports of a van similar to what they were seeing possibly in at this shop or company. I mean, I wonder how much older they were. Like, could it be, you know, a a, a similar kind of MO? Was it the same? Could it be the same perpetrators? Right. Could it have been the same person that did it to three other people? Right. Yeah. Like, you know, how some killers will do their big thing and then they'll go dormant for a while and then they'll just reenact the same exact, you know, MO. Now you have me thinking about the Trinity killer on Dexter. <laughs> you know, that he's, this, is, this is a Rose specialty here, this crazy connect the dot thing. <laughs> That is very odd. I wish I had more information about what actually happened with that. I don't know for sure if that information is out there, but I I don't know it. But very, very interesting. And it does make me wonder if there was any sort of connection, especially since it was in the same region. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, I've had a, you know, I've thought about this case a lot. Uh, this is one of the few cases that you've done that I've already knew about, but um, I can all I can talk about it all the time. I could never get past why there were no signs of struggle. There were not, you know, there was no evidence at all. Like I've thought a lot about how maybe the the mom, you know, had a guy over because you know she had a rocky, she had some rocky relationships, had a guy over and he maybe had hurt her already or killed her, and then the girls came home and found her. But then there's no evidence, so it's like. I guess he could have strangled the mother and then they came home and found, you know, her body and then he took care of them and his and took care of them in the same way or took them out at gunpoint or whatever. And um, that. yeah, and then I think, you know, well, he, you know, he knocked out the porch light so people wouldn't see him carrying out the bodies. But I think it's just the globe that was broken and not the light bulb. I can't remember yeah. that part. That part really intrigues me. The globe was broken, but the light bulb was still intact. See, and I wonder if maybe he broke the light bulb, took out the bodies, and then replaced the light so he could see again. But I don't know if there was like evidence of a broken light bulb or just, you know what I mean? Like maybe he had broken the light bulb and then replaced it. I don't know. I'm like really stretching there, but. Um, well, I, that glass got thrown away, so nobody knows. So yeah, maybe that, you know, maybe that was the case. He, uh, whoever it was took out the bodies and then replaced the light bulb. And I think that would further, I think it's somebody local, somebody who knew, knew the mother, Cheryl, and um, somebody, and another reason why I think it was local is because I do believe those are the bodies buried under that garage. Like I've always thought that. Um, and I can never understand why, I guess they don't want to destroy, you know, a, a $3 million garage. I can't remember how much it costs, but um, I just can't believe there would be, they would see three things in that, you know, three things under the concrete that probably could resemble bodies and thus not do anything about it. And, and the fact that there's never been, the bodies have never been found and there's never been any other kind of evidence just makes me think they're probably, you know, tucked away somewhere really nicely, like under a parking garage. Especially since that place was under construction at the time of the disappearance. And I, like you said, I get that they would be hesitant to tear up the structure but Mr. Norland, the professional with the technology that can look at this, has a very respected reputation. And if he is adamant that there are three figures of some sort and they're all similar size, I would think that would be enough yeah, to, get for them sure. to, say, to get them to do it. Yeah, I agree. Like, just do it. I wonder now, too, it, where exactly the these anomalies are and if you couldn't drill uh, like I'm not a construction person I'm not an engineer but couldn't you maybe like drill uh, depending on where they are drill a hole and then stick one of those cameras down there to see I mean would that be possible to just kind of it seems like it should be possible yeah there should be a way to do it without destroying you know a whole unless we're just not visualizing it properly but Maybe it would be impossible, but it seems like there should be a way to do it. And I, and I don't know what really happened with that parking structure situation. I read somewhere or saw in one of the interviews I watched or something, 
they were talking about it like it sounded like it was likely that they were going to dig it up and check and then i just it seemed like it just stopped like it never i don't think it ever happened yeah it didn't ever happen um and then you know police decided that the tip wasn't accurate or they didn't believe the tip and then i guess they just didn't trust the scan which i find absurd it seems to me like the guy was an expert but for some reason police just don't believe that it's a solid lead and i don't know why either i don't think anybody knows which is why we don't know yeah. i don't get it gpr scans are pretty reliable i mean they use them in archaeology digs all the time and right. you come they always come up with something based yeah. on those results i mean they just found what was it richard the third in a parking lot <laughs> oh wow i didn't even know that in england yeah he based on something like that so what i have to switch gears here and go back to something else what do you make of Susie and stacy's friend janelle when she and her boyfriend were in cheryl and Susie's home and just right in at the moment she happened to be at the home she got an obscene phone call yeah i've thought about that too and it goes back to my, the person was local theory as in very local, like the same neighborhood where maybe they could see people coming in and out and they were like, oh, okay. So somebody's checking on, you know, the girls. So let me give them a call to scare them or, you know, to like, well, I don't know, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but, you know, it goes back to that whole thing where people just like to return to the scene of the crime or taunt people. But um, I do think it, there's a good possibility that they are close enough to see that somebody was there because that timing was too precise but then there was a part of me that was like oh you know maybe it's one of those situations where um oops i killed my best friend and now we're going to try to you know throw some red herrings in there by saying there was a call but i don't really think janelle killed her friends that's silly but but you know you have to think of all angles these weird cases where people seemingly disappear into thin air well and then to your point brandon you know in the 80s 70s 80s 90s payphones were everywhere so i wonder how close the nearest payphone was on that street could someone have been been if there was one could someone have been watching and known when to payphones as you said were everywhere back then and that could have definitely been possible yeah the the perpetrator the person responsible was maybe just lingering in the area and um as they often do you know just watching to see police arrive or somebody anybody arrived if it was somebody totally random how would they even know the number unless they just you know they were like oh while i'm in here killing these people let me write down the number on the little (laughs) paper tab on the phone you know let me call call them later let me call the operator real quick on this (laughs) (laughs) what do you think of the server in that restaurant who says that she saw the three women there but nobody else was able to back up that story okay now name a case that we've done that a server in a diner in the middle of the night has not seen the missing people or the victims. <laughs> well, I, although I don't think it was the middle of the night, I, and okay. I right away thought of Antoinette Cayadito. Right. And it also happened with Betty Gill Brown. It even happened with the Grimes sisters. It's and, like, and the rainbow murders, those yes. hippie hitchhikers. Those, I mean, I think, I think it goes back to, servers to see so many people it actually and it makes me think of law and order svu episodes when they're like they go to a restaurant and they're like do you did you remember see this lady oh yeah she had the roast beef even though i'm like you've just you've waited on like 50 people last night and you remember that specific person but yeah it is interesting how somebody's always spotted in a restaurant it is funny that oh, like no, we do talk about it all the time yeah i actually looked up that restaurant because i was just curious to see if it was still there and it looks like it is and also the water park that the girls had planned to go to the day after they graduated um is still there it looks like i always curious about things like that when i'm researching these stories i I do too it sounds like that town has not um shut everything down like other towns (laughs) they probably still have an active mall too well then it sounds like we need to go on a road trip (laughs) hey we've got a whole list going we can add at Springfield can pop up there after we go to the Herb Baum Meister house. Yeah, we can eat dinner at that restaurant and then go to the water park. And we can be like, hey, excuse me, does that server still work here? <laughs> <laughs> 
can also check out that parking garage and see how accessible it really is. Really? We need to get some maps going and find out where exactly those anomalies are and see if we can get, get something going there with our own little theories. So if anybody sees us with hard hats and some tools and a parking garage, just ignore us and let us do some work. And you'll know it's us because we'll be wearing purple 3 a.m. Mystery Club t-shirts, which are available and, on our and, website and social media. Right and now. we'll we'll be carrying our smaller tools in our 3 a.m. Mystery Club fanny pack. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, absolutely. And it's probably going to be hot outside, so I'm sure we'll have an iced coffee in our 3 a.m. Mystery Club mug while we're <laughs> doing that work as well. Yeah. And you know, we'll have our socks on. I'll, I'll pull mine all the way up to my knees. My, or my 3 a.m. Mystery Club socks. <laughs> okay, we're getting ridiculous now. But we love, absolutely love the pictures that listeners of our podcast have posted of the merchandise that you've purchased from us. Thank you so much. And please, if you buy something from us, please post a picture so we can share it and appreciate you and say thank you. Yes. And if you want to hear any, any cases like this, like the uh, Springfield three or anything else, please, please throw us some ideas. We, we have a, we have a, you know, we have a whole collection of ideas that we're going through and we're going to, and we're never going to get through them all, but we want to make sure that we're covering things that you want to hear. So please recommend anything. And you can recommend those to us in so many ways. Uh, we always have our links up at the end of the episode but we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram we're on tiktok you can get in touch with us with your ideas on any of those platforms and we're all usually really quick to respond 